viewer visitor here, we want you to feel welcome as always, and we want you to have opportunity if you can to come back and visit with us again. Uh, we're going to study this uh, this morning from our text in First Timothy chapter six. Uh, as uh, the members here know, we're preaching through uh, the epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus uh, for the year. Um, and have uh, sort of identified different uh, themes or focus on different scriptures each month. Uh, What we recognize, at least certainly what I recognize, is that uh, I don't have adequate enough time to to be able to consider every directive or truth that's found in this text. Uh, Paul says a lot to Timothy and Titus, and of course he's saying a lot to us. Our intended theme for June uh, is found in the first words of 1 Timothy chapter Uh, 6 verse 12 where Paul says uh, gives the directive to fight the good fight of faith and we're going to talk about uh, this month the Lord willing some elements of that aspect of the struggle or the fight uh, for our faith uh, both objectively and subjectively as we think about faith Uh, what we recognize that we've looked as well at the the picture of godliness is that uh, even before we get to this passage is that godliness is a struggle uh, and Paul was certainly calling on Timothy and more than this particular passage to engage in the struggle, to engage in the battle, to fight the fight. Now that's not a physical fight and I think we recognize that. It's a spiritual battle uh, and it's many times typified by uh, our battle against personal sin and maybe as well against unbelief uh, that uh, the Christian must engage in uh, his own personal uh, battle or struggle Uh, with the things that would cause him to do what is wrong and to fall away from God, from the temptations that enter into life. I want to consider the words, uh, the the Apostle's words that lead up to verse 12 this morning. Uh, Why is godliness, why is it uh, what we we have defined as living to please God above all else, why is godliness a fight to be fought? Uh, In what way is it a struggle uh, for us to be godly people? Uh, And uh, the obstacles that we face, what are those obstacles? Well, that list would somewhat be long, and I think would include many of the things we've already talked about, and we'll even as well talk about as we pursue the theme. Uh, but certainly, there are some things mentioned in this text, I think, that we can give our consideration to in the immediate text. Uh, in verse 11, the passage before Paul says to fight the fight, he tells Timothy, Now you, O man of God, run from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Uh, it's interesting to me that uh, he tells them to fight and then he tells them to run. Or he tells them to run and then he tells them to fight. Uh, in, in, the, in the English vernacular, we might view this as somewhat of a contradiction. You either, you either stay and fight or you run. Now, Paul tells Timothy both that he has to run from some things and he has to fight the battle. And In that context, I believe it's not a contradiction, but what we recognize is that Success in the battle against sin includes both. It involves knowing my weaknesses and knowing uh, what I must flee from. And those things that are devastatingly dangerous to me, um, to flee from temptation because in doing that I'm fighting against sin. Uh, the Bible tells us as well that one way that we are able to, we, we fight against sin is to draw near to God and He will draw near to us. Um, and to abstain from that which is evil and cling to that which is good. But the idea of fleeing away from that which would harm us is something that uh, is mentioned several times in, in Paul's admonition to Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, he says to flee sexual immorality. He also told the Corinthians in chapter 10 to flee idolatry. Later on, we're going to notice as he talked to Timothy again, he's going to tell him to flee youthful lusts, passions, and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. 
that he is to flee youthful lust, but he is to pursue these things. Notice again that contrast. He is to move forward and yet run away at the same time. Pursue that as what is good, but part of pursuing what is good is knowing when it's time to run away from what's wrong. The idea of fleeing. The word flee comes from the original word fugo, which means to move quickly and decisively to avoid danger. So it's not a fleeing of cowardice, but rather it's a fleeing of cautiousness and prevention. The idea of running away from the standpoint of being far away from that which would do me harm. Uh, the original word is the word from which we is a root word from which we get the word fugitive. Uh, so the idea here is that I am to run far away and to avoid these things that would do me harm. The present tense of the verb in the text means that it's a constant fleeing. It's not that I just get away from it one time, or that the battle would be won uh, decisively through turning away from sin a single time. That Satan is relentless. Uh, and he's going to come back and back again. Uh, but I have to always be willing to avoid those things that are spiritually dangerous for me. Now, when he says, flee these things, what things is he talking about in the text itself? The New International Version renders this particular phrase as, flee from all this. So obviously, Paul's looking back in the text. He's saying, the th- there are things that we've just talked about, things that are we've just discussed, that you must... Not pursue, but rather run away from. You must stay away from them. He mentioned the false teachers earlier in this chapter. and talked about those who were destitute of the truth. Uh, those who didn't have any desire for the truth, but thought that godliness was a way of gain. He told Timothy personally, you withdraw from these folks. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't try to compromise with them. But when we look at the remote context, I think that's included. When he says flee these things or flee all of these things, that that would be included that Paul's telling Timothy here that he needs to stay away from false teachers, stay away from from bad doctrine, uh, that he needs to pursue what is right uh, and avoid what is wrong. But one thing that's contained in the immediate context that I'd like to give our attention to this morning uh, is Paul describes the aspect of the love of money. Uh, he says that the love of money is the root of all evil, uh, and he gives some cautions about that and the warnings about it. And I think that's included in this context of what Paul's saying about flee all of these things, stay away from this. And in that context, what we have to understand is that money, and particularly the love of money, is spiritually dangerous. It is something that we are to be aware of. And we also have to recognize in the context of this uh, our weaknesses in regards to the aspect of material possessions and a desire to have more. Do you think money presents a real spiritual threat to Christians today? There's some who suggest that Timothy may very well, because of the, the number of times that Paul mentions this in the context in, the, in his letters to Timothy, that Timothy may very well have had uh, some real struggles with this, or spirit, that, that Paul recognized that Timothy maybe had weaknesses along this line. But I'm absolutely certain that I do, and I would suggest that you do as well. That the aspect of material possessions and the desire for what can be provided to us in this world poses a spiritual threat. And it's one of those things that the scriptures, I think, uh, relate to us uh, from several different perspectives. Return back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to read a few verses there, beginning in verse 3. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teachings that promotes godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing. But having a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words, from these come envy and quarrelings and slanders and evil suspicions and constant disagreement among men 
whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take in nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pains. Paul's words here speak, I think, to the obstacle that money presents uh, from several different perspectives, and we'll try to look at it more precisely in the text itself. But I want to take a moment and consider how the love of money fits into the discussion of fighting the fight, meaning that this aspect of the desire for things becomes a personal struggle. It's not just something that we recognize at a societal level, you know, where the world's so greedy out there, and there's a lot of that perspective going on, and I think rightfully so, to make, to, to certainly to bring to our attention that this world runs by the perspective of greed. But Paul's admonition here is more of a personal nature. The idea that you must fight the good fight by recognizing the threat that the love of money poses to you. But one question I think we might ask is, what does it mean to love money? Uh, Am I guilty of that? Is this something that really impacts me? How could I tell if I was a lover of money? Is there something in the text that would present this to me? Oh, I, I think we would all recognize that loving money is not loving the paper that money is printed on. It's not loving the green stuff or the gold stuff. It's not loving copper coins. I know folks that have whole closets full of, uh, of different coins because they collect them. And they have a lot of different old money. Uh, they're not, they wouldn't fall into this category of being a lover of money because they collect the money itself from different places and different people. But the love of money has to do with what money represents to us and how we view what money can buy in the material possessions around us. The Bible uses the word, New Testament uses the word mammon in scripture which is, some, which is to be understood by, as being money but it, money takes on a lot of different forms and it always has in terms of society. Sometimes money is made out of paper, sometimes it was made out of precious metals or gold. We even mentioned last week that salt sometimes was used as a commodity to pay soldiers in the first century and so it itself became money. So in different societies, money has taken on different forms. Yet the consistent thing about the aspect of money or mammon in every society is it stood, as a, it stood and does stand as a symbol for human resources. That what is money to us is the currency that places value on the things of what you can get from other people. So if you want something what someone else has, you give them money and that's presents the value of what they're giving you and you try to agree on that of how much money this is worth to you and how much I would give it up for and so the aspect of the currency has to do with human resources. Now I believe that's an important perspective. It's certainly definitive in how we understand what money is to us but I believe it's a certain perspective, important perspective in this discussion because there's a difference in terms of what you and I can get from other people and what God alone can give. That God is not concerned about money and you can't interact with God on the basis of money because money doesn't deal with that realm. It doesn't deal with the realm of spiritual things. Jesus teaches us this distinction in a passage we're getting ready to study in Luke when they ask Jesus, uh, should we pay taxes? His enemies come to ask him to pay taxes. And Jesus says, give me one of those coins you have. And he gave him a denarius and says, okay, whose picture's on this? And they say, well, Caesar's picture's on it. And you remember what Jesus says. Okay, if Caesar's picture's on it, then give it back to Caesar. Render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and the 
to God the things that belong to God. So Jesus is making a distinction there. There are things that God provides for you. There are spiritual things, you see, that belong to Him and there is honor that's due as a result of that. And then there are physical things that simply are deal with the physical aspect of men and what men can provide for you and what you can give back to them. So Jesus makes this distinction. There are things that have man's image on it. There are things that have God's image on it. Those whom Jesus was talking to, his decide, the, 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 the people, the human beings themselves, I believe Jesus was implying, you're made in the image of God. You need to give yourself back to God. Uh, this coin has Caesar's image on it, so you give it to him. But the idea of the image itself represented, you see, the realm in which it would involve itself. So money belongs to the human realm. It has no power in the spiritual realm. So the obstacle that money, I think, presents to us presents itself from the aspect of human life, but in a comprehensive way, how we view life itself. The lover of money displays a lack of faith in respect to both his past, his present, and his future, and particularly in the aspect of how he views his human life here on this earth. Let me present this from those perspectives. What does it mean to love money? Well, the lover of money, you see, is consumed with acquiring more of it. If he loves it, he wants more of it. And that itself is definitive of the aspect of what it means to love money. And it has to do with what I want for myself right now. In this pursuit, the lover of money follows the world around and he follows the perspectives of the world you see, and he puts physical things above spiritual things. In fact, he may have no regard for spiritual things at all. His whole life may be geared by the aspect of what he can get physically. And he wants more. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, the wise man said, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase this also is vanity. So what God would teach us about the aspect of loving money is that it's foolish from the perspective of the present because... You see, you're never going to be satisfied by just getting more. Money fails in that regard to provide what we seek, even from the physical perspective. But the lover of money also has a false view of his past, or at least he has an unspiritual view of how he views his past. Because loving money is more than just wanting more of it. The problem goes deeper than just that I want more money or that I want more things. Gehazi wanted more. Judas wanted more. Achan wanted more for the present. But the problem went deeper than that. And that's what those stories teach us in the Scriptures. Is the selfish individual or the greedy individual wants more because he's not satisfied with what he's been given in the past. Why does a person want more? On what basis would he come to that conclusion? Well, it has to be based on a conclusion of dissatisfaction or a lack of content with what God has already provided for him. If what God has already given is enough, then we're not going to have a problem with wanting more. There's not going to be an aspect of loving money because loving money can't provide, you see, something that we don't really desire or we would not seek it. And that's why Paul mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 in our context that godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul makes a vital point here through a play on words. He's already mentioned that there are these false teachers who believe that they can make more money by trying to be godly or that godness is a way of making money. And there's a lot of folks that believe that today. There are a lot of hucksters out there who, who take on religion, who, who propose to be pious individuals and even concerned individuals when bottom line is they just want more money and that's what they're doing it for. So they see godliness as a way of making more money. 
And Paul's already mentioned that, and th- so he makes a play on words. If the aspect is to have a profit, if the, if the goal is to gain things, then the Christian has a real perspective that the world does not have, and that is that godliness with contentment is great gain. That what, God, what, what a person can really profit from is living a godly life, a devotion to God, accompanied by a contentment with what God has already provided. The, the, the NSA version of that passage gives us the sense. It says, it, it says that God, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So living the godly life, which involves persecution and suffering, provides profit, not in the physical realm. If we're seeking in the physical realm, then we're going to seek money. But if we're seeking in a spiritual realm, then we're going to find that profit in the aspect of being content with what God has already given us in the past. And so that's what Paul says here in verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. The idea that money has no value beyond the grave. You can't take it with you. And therefore you see it has, it has its own limitations. But contentment, you see, has spiritual profit. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 that he learned in whatever circumstances he was in to be content. And you think about what value that was to Paul. If he wrote these words in Philippians from a Roman jail near the end of his life where he suffered so much persecution for the cause of Christ, to be able to look back on his life and to say, I've kept the faith, I've finished it, everything is good, life is good. On what basis could he make that perspective without contentment? If he was still longing for something, if there was still something that physically that had not yet attained, if he was loving something in the physical realm, then that wouldn't be possible. But the fact that he was content with God's gifts, you see, provided for him this great gift of peace and joy. Now we recognize that contentment, as it's mentioned in the Scriptures, is not a lack of ambition. It's not the aspect that, well, I'll be satisfied when I get one more thing. If that was true, then seeking money might very well be the road to contentment. But that's just the point. It's not. Because the man who seeks after silver will not be satisfied with it. There is no satisfaction in the physical things to be had. And therefore, contentment, you see, must be something other than that. It's not dependent upon something else that I get. It's looking back at what I already have and being satisfied with that. Contentment is being satisfied with what God provides. And that's why contentment is so connected with, inherently connected with, one's faith. That he believes that God provides and ultimately believes God has already provided. So the providence of God is at the heart of the command to be content. And that's why discontent is sin. It's not because it makes us unhappy discontented people are unhappy and we look out in the world and we see there are a lot of unhappy people out there unfulfilled people, people who want more who never seem to be able to get what they want and what a tragedy that is but that's not why it's wrong why discontentment is wrong is because it is an affront to faith of the Christian it's an affront to divine provision in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 notice this passage Paul says, the writer of Hebrews says keep your life free from the love of money And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's an interconnectedness to this very simple verse. That's not difficult to understand. It's a very simple verse. But the interconnectedness of it is the whole argument, so to speak. The commands parallel one another. To keep yourself free from the love of money comes as a result of being content with what you have. 
Well, how can I be content with what I have? That's based upon the promises of God that He will never leave me, that He will never forsake me. So I go from the aspect of the struggle of the physical things around me being connected, intimately connected with the promises that come from God's own voice. That means embellishing my life with the promises of God, being totally devoted to what God says in His Word, and making that the root of my life is the avenue by which I'm able to overcome dissatisfaction and the love of money. So the command to be content is inherently linked to the command to be free from the love of money because one cannot happen with another, nor can either one of those happen without a firm belief and confidence in the promises of God. That's why this is an issue of faith. And that's why one reason why it's a part of the struggle, the fighting for faith, that Paul mentions in this text. But there's another element here, and that is that the lover of money has a false view of the future. And we've already mentioned this in a sense. that The problem money imposes speaks to the reason why one would want more. Why do you want more? Because I believe that money can buy what I really need and therefore secure my future. So money is viewed, falsely so, as a source of joy. Money is viewed as a source of security. And there's a sense in which that is so well ingrained into how we think and how the world thinks that it poses an ongoing daily threat to the Christian and how he views life. What will make your life secure? What will prepare you for tomorrow? What will give you the security that you need? Well, there are very few things we could put on that list that most people would put on that list that don't involve the, as- don't involve the aspect of securing physical possessions. Be secure when I can afford a security system for my house and I can put cameras around. I'll be financially secure when I get the money in the bank and 401k and I hide it from all the tax problems that are coming. When I can provide security is when I can get things around me that will provide for me security. Is that right? You know, Jesus flips that on its head when he would have us to recognize that security has nothing to do with what money can buy. That money can only buy those things in the physical realm and there is no security in the physical realm. The prosperous farmer in Jesus' parable of Luke chapter 12 viewed the security of his future in the context of bigger barns. He had already gotten what God had given him and the prosperity he had from those crops the year before. He had a lot of things to store. Now all he needed was bigger barns to put them in. And if he got bigger barns to put them in, then you see he'd be satisfied with what God had done. And so, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease and eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you, which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I would suggest to you, though, what we see, one thing we have to see in this passage is that, again, Jesus' distinction between the aspect of the physical and the spiritual. He says, I've got everything I need. I've got the barn to put them in. I can secure myself because I can keep all this stuff for the future. And Jesus said, Tonight, your soul is required of you. The bill came due, but it wasn't a physical bill. It was a spiritual bill. It was an accountability that had to do with spiritual things. And money couldn't do anything about that. All the barns in the world filled with all the possessions could not secure any spiritual security. So when that arrived, you see, then things were turned on their head. And so Jesus says, What's going to happen if you? Well, when, whose will these things be which you have provided? 
So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Raise up treasures on earth as opposed to laying up treasures in heaven. And Jesus made that distinction many times. So money has no value beyond the grave. And that's what what Paul says you see in verse 7 that we mentioned before. Brought nothing into this world, certainly we could carry nothing out. That's one of those truths that we accept intellectually, right? There are no U-Hauls attached to the hearses. Although I saw a picture of that on the internet the other day. It was a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. And, and, and the meme was, you know, well, all that goes out the door because there's one. Uh, but I doubt that U-Haul really had anything in it that he was going to take beyond the grave. But that's usually what we look at, the aspect, that there, there are no U-Hauls on the hearses. You don't take anything with you. The rich man dies just like the poor man. And, and death robs us all of any of the security that we had before. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And one thing that impresses me about that passage is not only the poetic nature of it, but how focused it is on the Lord. You only get to that perspective by recognizing that God's in charge of everything. He gives, He takes. Blessed be His name. Money provides seemingly promises security it cannot provide. In the 11th chapter of Proverbs, verse 28, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. In the 23rd chapter of Proverbs, verse 5, Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will certainly sprout wings and fly off like an eagle. And surely we recognize that. The question is whether or not we live like it. Now what this tells me, even as I look in Paul's text of 1 Timothy chapter 6, that Paul says we should not be a lover of money because money has its own limitations. It disappoints now, it disappoints my view of the past, and it disappoints my view of the future. It's limited because it cannot buy anything that God wants to provide for me, anything of lasting value that God wants to provide for me. You know, Naaman had to learn that lesson. He thought he could buy it with money. And though Gehazi sought after it because he was a lover of money and and got some of that, he had to give it all up. But the idea, you see, that this particular principle appears in scriptures over and over again. Simon the sorcerer thought he could buy what God would provide with money. Peter says, you have nothing to do with this. This has nothing to do with money or how much money you have. This is about what God is doing. And so God deals with the blessings that come not through any transaction but rather through grace. What I get from God, I get because of who He is, not because of what I have or what I can provide. One writer wrote, God deals in the currency of grace and not money. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Isaiah 55 verse 1. Money is the currency of human resources, so the heart that loves money is a heart that pins its hopes and its pursuits and its pleasures and puts its trust in what human resources can offer. And there, I think, is, at least from my view, there's the ground level of this aspect of why it's wrong to love money. Because it's rooted in the wrong realm. It deals with that which you see is very limited and cannot provide what God would want and does provide for me. Covetousness, or greed, or love of money, is evidence of unbelief. And therefore, it's the enemy of those who would fight for faith, not only for faith objectively in terms of truth, but fight for my own faith subjectively and my trust in God. The one who loves money places his confidence in what money can buy because he thinks it has value when actually it does not. I think about Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3. Again, Paul's discussions in Colossians chapter 3 is about 
putting on the old, putting off the old and putting on the new. The transformation of the Christian. And the idea here that you must fight to put off the things of the flesh. In verse 3 he says, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, and passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now that little phrase, covetousness is idolatry, pretty insightful, isn't it? What Paul is, again, is he is reinforcing the argument. Why should you not search after physical things? Why should you not be a covetous person? Because it is in itself a lack of faith in putting your trust in a God that cannot deliver. That it's no different than bowing down to some piece of wood because you think it can provide for you and spend all your life seeking after having more money when it cannot provide for you. And all the humiliation of the prophets of Baal on the Mount Carmel, all the humiliation of, you see, the satire of Isaiah's statements in Isaiah chapter 40, all of that applies to you and I and our society and to Wall Street and all the things that go along with the covetous values that our world applauds. Now what Paul says as well in this text is that seeking after money is spiritual suicide. In verse 9, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Love money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving for it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pains. I believe this is one of the most countercultural aspects of, the, of this topic and maybe of all the teachings of the New Testament. We encourage our children to sacrifice everything to get a good education so that they can make more money and get a good job. And we teach them that they need to seek this because that, this is what will make them successful in life. And we turn to the page and we recognize that what Paul's saying about making money and about having money is that it's spiritual suicide. It will lead to spiritual destruction. What we should be teaching them is the value of spiritual things and physical things and how to make the discernments to which they can provide for themselves. The ability to fight the spiritual fight. Wanting to be rich is incompatible with serving Christ. How incompatible is it? How many people will be kept out of heaven because they have too much money or because they desire to have money? We often counter that by saying, well, money itself is not wrong. And that's true. But I think we have to be careful that we're not trying to rationalize away what the Bible truly teaches about the dangerous environment we place ourselves in, not only when we desire more money, but ultimately maybe when we have money. In Luke chapter, eight, Luke chapter 18, Jesus encountered a rich man who wanted eternal life. But when Jesus commanded this man to sell what he had, all of his riches, and give it to the poor, he rejected and he walked it away. And the disciples scratched their head about that and said, well, who then can be saved? It says, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, talking about the young man, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now we notice, we know that as we studied this a while back, there are those who say, well, that's not really the eye of a needle and not really a camel, that that's an analogy that has to do with some gate in Jerusalem that the camel had to get down his knees. It was difficult, but it wasn't impossible. And all the attempts to explain away the forcefulness of this particular passage are tragic. Because what Jesus is certainly saying is ominous here. And to be paid attention to. A person who possesses riches has put an enormous obstacle in his way to spiritual salvation. Matthew Henry says this is a proverbial expression denoting a difficulty altogether unconquerable by the art and the power of man. That money poses for so many an insurmountable obstacle 
Now, what we also recognize in this is that the love of money breeds other sins. And that's part of what Paul addresses here. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, the text says. I make a note here as we hurry up to finish that, again, I'm somewhat disappointed sometimes not only with the interpretation, but sometimes even with the modern translation of this passage. We note a difference in the translation of this passage. All the other older translations, the Wycliffe, the King James Version, the Darby, the Revised Standard Version, literally translate this passage, the love of money is the root of all evils. Now, you notice that maybe in your more modern translation, the NIV, even the New King James, that it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So the idea there being that it's not the root of all evil, but it's the root of all kinds of evil. But the problem with this, again, at least as I see it, is that that's not what the text actually says. That the Greek expression itself is a literal translation of the aspect of all all evil itself. That what we've done sometimes, at least seemingly what has been done in those modern translations, is to accommodate the text to what we see around us. Is the love of money the root of all evil? Well, certainly you and I can recognize there are people sin who have no idea about the love of money. They, they, they might lie to their wife because they don't want to get in trouble. The sin of David and Bathsheba, was that about money? No, it was about the lust of the flesh. It was about sexual desire. So there are all kinds of sins out there that you and I could catalog that have, where people did them without any perspective of the aspect that they wanted more money. So because of that, we perceive that that can't really be what He's saying here is that money has the love of money has to do with every evil or all evil. And that's a point to be made. I don't deny that. But I would suggest to you that we maybe some to recognize is that our inability to reconcile the text with our perception of what we see around us doesn't warrant, doesn't warrant altering the text. We at least need to be honest and say this is what the text actually says and this is, what, this is the statement the apostle is making. He's making a connection between greed and every evil we see around us. Well, what connection is that? It may very well be what we've already addressed, and that is all evil has to do as its source the aspect of unbelief. The unwillingness to trust God for the moment and for the future, and for what God says, to put absolute confidence in God's own word and His value systems is what leads to sin. It's the lust of the eye and the pride of life. It's the aspect, you see, of the lust of the flesh. Those things all have to do with a lack of unbelief. So... It is hard to imagine, you see, a sin that's not connected with the aspect of a lack of faith. That all evil has that root. And Paul doesn't want us to get caught into that trap. Because what we see in the love of money that's so prevalent around us is that which breeds every sin in the lives of every person. And therefore, it's an enormous danger. And Paul says, you're trapped like an animal taken and taken unaware. You're drowned as someone who's tossed into the sea and can't get back up again. Because what it produces is more and more desires. It feeds on itself as individuals become caught up in the desire to have more. In the covetousness of society, it leads to further desires for power, for the, for the desire to be liked by others, to be culturally accepted by others. All of those things relate together in the aspect of the decision to do what is wrong and to sin. What's that mean? That means I'm in the midst of an enormous spiritual battle in the world that I live in. An enormous spiritual battle from every front. And Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Because discipleship itself 
is a call to make the most difficult decisions of life. Decisions that are most difficult for me to make have the, are the decisions that I have about myself. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I would have us notice that Jesus again is willing to use the language of transaction to talk about spiritual things. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and gives up his own soul? What will he give for his spiritual soul? If it's put on the table to barter for, what will you give to save your soul? Or what will you be willing to cherish so much that you would lose your soul to have it? That's pretty basic, isn't it? Jesus putting it right down where you see you and I can understand it. And ultimately he says, whoever loses his life, whoever would give up all of his life for me, he will find it. That there is a spiritual realm to which money has no value, but faith and trust in God is the true currency that spins. Put your trust in God. Live for Him. Give up everything you need to give up to secure Jesus Christ and you have life. Thank you for your attention this morning. That call to give ourselves up, that call of faith is a call to obedience. Unreserved obedience in everything that God says. Not attempting to accommodate what He says to what we want. Not mixing together and compromising the physical as though by serving God I can have physical things or that God promised me some prosperity by serving Him. But rather understanding that when God promises what He will give to me as a result of my willingness to give up everything for Him, that those blessings are spiritual. And Paul says every spiritual blessing is in Christ Jesus. You want to be forgiven, you want to be reconciled, you want to be adopted into the family of God, you want an inheritance that cannot be taken away from you. You want to have relationships that are based upon love and that exhibit love in your life. You need to come to Jesus because those are the things He gives. You can't buy them with anything you put in your pocket. But you can secure them through your faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Be a lover of faith and a lover of God and not a lover of money. Can we help you while we stand and while we sit?